welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle, chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we welcome a legendary observer of the entertainment business, also a major participant in it, author, journalist, columnist, former studio executive, producer, television host, and editor-in-chief of Variety, Mr. Peter Bart. Welcome, Peter. Good evening. I think the only thing you haven't done is craft service. The craft services? Yeah, I think that's the only thing you haven't done. <laughs> no, I, I've managed to avoid it. I've never done publicity either. I am not, I was never very skilled at that. Well, I, that's what I did for about 30 years. So that's where I studied under Stan Rosenfield, who, of course, brought us together nicely. I have to start off and tell you that there have been many changes in our business over the years. But one of the more dramatic for me, and certainly one of the ones closer to you, is when we lost the daily trade papers in this town. I, used, I think I was in college when I picked up my first issue of Variety, and I read it for decades. And I'm curious, um, I, everything is usually an economic reason. Was it the, the end of the, tra the daily trade papers, papers primarily an economic reason? Yes, exactly. Um, the world of digital was looming, and somehow the idea of print was beginning to fall out of uh, people's habit pattern. But the sad part of it is that the arrival of Daily Variety or The Hollywood Reporter was sort of an event for people. It kind of started the day, sometimes in a harsh way. But I think the town sort of lost something of its rhythm when the daily the daily papers stopped. Well, you know, it's always said that Hollywood at its core is a fairly small town. I mean, it's, and I th think of the trade papers as the diary of the city. In fact, as a researcher and an author like you, I've gone back and read the trades uh, many issues in a row, and I get a feeling for uh, the heartbeat of the city. And I, although obviously I respect the, the the weekly trades as being, you know, put together very nicely, I miss the daily heartbeat. The weekly trades are a little bit on the boring side. That's the basic problem because they're business papers. I mean, my attitude when I was running variety, particularly daily variety, was that it's show business. This is fun. And the, the, the trade papers too should be entertaining. So we weren't, though we conveyed the business, we had quirky headlines and our attitude was somewhat um, challenging. Um, I like to think that they were fun to read, that daily variety in that era was exasperating and funny. And today the town takes itself very seriously. Right. I, I, I get the impression that the bean counters have taken over the business and that uh, everything is based on some kind of model as opposed to the adventure of it. Um, as a as a producer, as a, a trying to be a working producer in this town, also being a writer, I also found that during the daily period, you could get some coverage for a project before it was a project. You could tell people that you had acquired rights to something. You could tell people that you had cast somebody. And although there's a little tiny bit of that in enclosed in the trades these days, I find that from a, for a working producer, the trades are no longer useful in that process. Well, a lot of producers are very gifted at using the trades to their advantage. And listen, in the days that I was a studio person, I now and then uh, would, would leak something if I felt that it would uh, make a project more exciting. If you had a, a sort of one star and really wanted that second co-star or a hot director, sometimes a smart leak would open things up. So we all used the the we all used the trades in a in a clever way. I think that was part of the fun. So let's go back to your beginnings. You're a a New Yorker. Um, you were. Um... 
I, I'd like to ask my guests, the listeners know this of me, I always like to guess, ask my guests where their first encounter with movies began. Were, were you, were you a, uh, was your family a movie-going family? Oh, not at all. And I wasn't a movie-going person. Indeed, one of the things that amused and just upset me was when I did make the jump from newspapers to Paramount. I was uniquely unqualified because I really did not have a background uh, in, in film going. I was not a film nerd like, say, Peter Bogdanovich of that era. Um, my family did not go to the movies much, and um, I didn't growing up. So you didn't see Wizard of Oz in the theater? Actually, I didn't see it. My mother, typically being an educator, saw that it was opening at the same time that that, that movie about uh, the Chinese famine opened. I forget, The Good Earth. The Good Earth, so of course. My mother decided, and my father, that I should see The Good Earth rather than The Wizard of Oz. The first time I saw The Wizard was at the opening of the Motion Picture Museum when they had this wonderful screening with an orchestra, The Wizard of Oz. And by God, it was exciting for me because, and I didn't tell anybody, because that was the first time I'd ever seen the movie. Now, which museum are we talking about? The Museum of Motion Pictures in Bevel in uh, Los Angeles. You're talking about on Fairfax and uh, uh, Wilshire? Exactly. But that just opened. That means you, you hadn't seen The Wizard of Oz ever? You're damn right. And that was emblematic of the fact that my advantage and disadvantage when I moved into actually making movies was that I was unprepared for it. I think that was a great help. So you've got it. You've got. I, I'm. I'm sure you've told the story many times, but you've got to tell me how a New York journalist all of a sudden is offered a cushy job working for a movie studio. <laughs> no, it's like everything in in Hollywood or in business in general. Look, Bob Evans, personally, he was a friend of mine. He was a close friend, and when when we often talked about movies and about books. He was an ambitious young producer at that time. So when he got offered this incredible job, um, he came to me and said, you know, I would love it if you would, you would come in and, and work with me because you're the only person whose credentials are even more meager than mine. <laughs> Well, now, did you know Robert going back to when he was in the uh, haberdashery business, Evans Pacone? Was that something you knew he him had left, He had left that, and of course, he had had something of an acting career, and he always regarded himself as a lousy actor, untalented, and that was a good evaluation. But he was a very ambitious young producer and had made, just starting to make pictures and um, had great promise, was doing a lot of reading, and, and I met him because he knew writers and filmmakers. And I met him because I was a good friend of Abby Mann, who wrote amazing movies like Judgment at Nuremberg. And he was a close friend of Evans. And since Evans and I were close friends, Abby joined us and sort of the three of us kind of discovered movies together in a way. So being an, I, I assume that uh, the position you were offered by Mr. Evans involved you moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. No, because the New York Times had uh, asked me uh, at, after a few years on, on the Times, had asked me to move to Los Angeles hmm. with this understanding. They said, the uh, news editor of the Times said to me, very distinctly, look, we want you to cover politics, the rise of Ronald Reagan. There's an interesting undercurrent of racial tension growing in Los Angeles and San Francisco. We would like you to be our correspondent covering politics, race, and other issues of that sort. We do not want you to write about movies if you have to write maybe once a month. But the movie industry is dying. Television has stolen its audience. So do not think of yourself as the Hollywood correspondent of the Times and don't write much about Hollywood. What year, what year did you come out? 64. 
So, okay, so 1964, let's the see. Studios, <laughs> the studios were all falling apart. <laughs> it was a tremendous financial crisis. And that was the opportunity. Since the studios were all in the red, this was a moment when they had to reinvent the way they did everything. And they would accept Evans and Bart because they knew out of desperation that they needed a whole new scenario. Now, let me think back now. Uh, is this is, is Gulf and Western owning Paramount at the moment when exactly. you got there? So that's Charlie, Charlie, Charlie Blue Dawn? Yes, and he was personally the person who hired Evans. But, um, uh, and he was very much a conglomerator who became kind of interested in movies. But his interests were totally wrong-headed. He, being a European, an Austrian, his big dream was to make musicals. And the disaster that Evans and I faced when we came to Paramount was that he had greenlit some absolutely awful musical pictures like Paint Your Wagon, which he regarded would be a great MGM, like an MGM in its prime. The concept, however, of uh, Lee Marvin singing to Clint Eastwood was not exactly the same as uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Roberts. Rogers. <laughs> to say, so, to say the yeah, least. <laughs> the pictures that he had greenlit and which we then had to come and apologize for, and we started a whole different program of movies. Um, but that was, again, poverty, the poverty of the studios was an opportunity. And I think a lot of young people today should regard the times at the moment as times of opportunity because the studios are not doing well. Even Disney has started layoffs. You have a writer's strike looming. I think this is a moment uh, of great opportunity for people who have different ideas to move into the entertainment business. But that's another subject. Well, it's a good subject. Uh, I want to get back to that in a second. So was there any hesitancy on your part to move from journalism to film production? Yeah, because I was slated to go to London. I was educated in London. I was slated to go there as the Times correspondent, a job that I preferred, so frankly, going to Los Angeles. And, and, uh, but going to Los Angeles was an interesting challenge because um, the Watts riots were, had just occurred the tremendous racial tensions, which had been unknown in LA. And, and at the same time, Ronald Reagan uh, was a great story. And he was, uh, unlike Donald Trump, he was a terrific guy to cover because he was friendly, needy, articulate, and writing about uh, Reagan's rise was a terrific opportunity for me as a journalist. But you segued into film. Uh, what were what was your first impression of your day at the studio? Was it a little overwhelming at first, being that you were underqualified? Yeah, but I was weirdly qualified in this way. As the New York Times only reporter in Los Angeles, even though I wasn't there to cover movies, um, the, the top stars and filmmakers of that moment regarded me as a great opportunity because, my God, movies were fading. If, if the New York Times ran a piece about me, uh, that would be a big help to them. So my first introduction to movie stars and to the great directors is they were coming to me. I wasn't going to them. So when I then, a couple of years later, wanted, uh, say, to do True Grit with John Wayne, John Wayne had come to me and wanted me to do an article about him for the New York Times a year before. So it wasn't a big deal for me to call John Wayne and say, Duke, I have a book for you. That would be just great. So the odd thing is hiring a journalist, a New York Times journalist, was a brilliant move for a studio because I knew the players. You know, I recently watched this Paramount Plus television series, The Offer all about the making of The Godfather. I found it to be a, a terrific series. I thought the guy who played uh, Evans was brilliant. What was your impression of that show? I assume that you've seen the show. Everything about the offer was a lie. There was not one fact about me, about Evans, about any of the movies that was true. 
it was an appalling example of vulgarizing a great movie. Wow. That's well, considering that you were present uh, as an eyewitness, that sounds like that's coming from the from right from the truth. Uh, well, the uh, only people the only people who knew what the facts were was Francis Coppola and me. But Al Ruddy, who was depicted as the star of this picture, had been fired as a producer, and neither Evans nor Coppola would even talk to him. So the fact that this ridiculous series appears that make him look as the instigator was a laugh. And one of the, the funny things is that the day after, the week after the, the piece ran, the show started to run, Francis Coppola calls me and he says, now, it's something wrong with me, but every single fact is wrong. As an example, the, or there were all these scenes about planning the movie and, and shooting the movie that were taking place on the Paramount lot. By that time, Evans and I, and with Francis, moved, had moved off the lot into an office in Beverly Hills because a company that was essentially a mafia front had bought the physical lot. So Bob and I, we moved off. Now, the whole show or the offer, scene after scene shows us conferring at the studio and shooting at the studio. There was not one second, as Francis Coppola said to me, laughing at it. There was not a second we were on the lot. And that, to him and to me, embodied the fact that this is one of the, the great lies of, uh, of storytelling about movies. Well, this is very interesting to me. Um, in terms of prime movers on getting that movie made, um, the impression you get not only from the miniseries, which uh, obviously has its problems, but in the stories and mythology ever since that's been written about the Godfather, was that uh, there was uh, there was kind of a fight against getting Pacino and Marlon Brando in the film. I get the impression there's some controversy there as well. Well, the here was the problem that I faced. Um, Personally, because it was my idea to buy the rights to the novel and to recruit Francis, because Bob Evans thought it was an interesting idea, but he had never met Francis. Now, so the, the problem that I ran into is I wanted to make, with Evans' ag agreement and enthusiastic consent, we would, the idea was to make The Godfather as an art picture. It was being made, a, the budget was six million. We had a new director. We were going with, with actors who were not stars at the moment. Pacino was unknown. And Marlon Brando had just come out with two or three disasters. So he was unbankable. So the idea of The Godfather was to make a rather modestly budgeted art movie about gangsters. That was the notion going forward. That's what motivated us. Here was the problem. Right in the middle of pre-production, The Godfather was published. Remember, what I wanted to buy, what I optioned, was rights to an unfinished novel. Suddenly, the novel is finished, published, and is the biggest bestseller in the world. So the student, the people who ran Gulf and Western are on the phone and saying, well, what's going on? You're making Godfather as a relatively low-budget picture with an actor like Brando who has failed on every one of his movies. What, what are you, that's crazy. I want, Charlie Bluton said, I want the most important director in the world. I want the biggest stars in the world. Everything you're doing is wrong. Well, it turned out that everything that we were doing was right, but because of the fa instant fame of the book, this, the, the people who, they are, are our main corporate parent disdained the way we're putting the picture together. So that was the reason why, sure, there was opposition to Brando, there was resistance to Pacino. They didn't like anything that we were doing. And they were convinced that Evans and I were, were screwing up the most important novel of our time. They were wrong. You said that um, you read the book before it was finished. Uh, uh, was Mario Puzo introduced to you when you were a journalist or had you met him socially? 
uh, as a writer, um, I knew a number of the important editors in the publishing business. And Mario's editor, a terrific guy named William Targ of Putnam, he called me and he said, look, Peter, I know you from the Times and I know you actually read books. There, there is something that it's not done yet, but I think you'll really understand the, the Godfather. It's half written and an outline of the second half, but I'd like you to understand one important fact about the Godfather. Mario Puzo, the writer, is literally starving and he doesn't have the money to finish the book. So in optioning the book, you will be paying Mario to finish it. And that was a good incentive for me. That's a great story. That's a great story. Um, obviously, um, uh, if you watch that now uh, <laughs> uh, TV series that may not have had a speck of truth in it, there's a lot of references to uh, mob involvement in uh, influencing the the filmmaking, especially by using New York locations and demanding that the film company couldn't do this and that. Was any of that true? It's all a lie. But the mafia liked the book. And the important members of the mafia uh, really wanted to be part of the action. I mean, their big emphasis, for example, to me and to Evans was, you know, this is a good picture. When the picture is released, would like percentage of the premiere. And they were a little like emphatic about their, they would like to be a participant. So far from opposing the movie, which this ridiculous series that Paramount made, Paramount Plus, and point of fact, the mafia liked it. And the important mafia captains asked to be present on a couple of the key days of the shoot. So the, the the reason this series is so laughable, I mean, these the important members of the mafia are supposedly threatening our lives. In point of fact, what their big demand was, they wanted to be there and watch the action. They wanted tickets to the premiere. <laughs> they wanted part of the of the money from the premiere. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, so I think it's embarrassing today that that Paramount having gained so much from the movie, participated in this preposterous lie. It sounded like it was a huge ego thing for Al Ruddy to get this moving, to put, put himself square in the center. And listen, I had hired Al to be the producer, and he was embarrassed and insulted by the fact that he'd been fired as producer. And, and he actually, he did, was around for some of the shooting for the end, but he was kind of ostracized. That's a big deal for a studio executive to fire a producer. That doesn't happen very often. Can you talk a little bit about well, what you- was... Al... Hmm? I'm sorry? Al committed a terrible faux pas because he, he gave a story to the New York Times. I didn't write it. I was long gone, obviously, in, in which he suggested that the mafia had demanded and received the right to read the script and even make some changes in the screenplay and in the shoot, um, which of course is ridiculous. But uh, Charlie Bluron read this in the Times and went crazy because it, he said, look, I've got a publicly owned company and we have stockholders and I don't want them to think that the Godfather has been uh, orchestrated by the mob. Wow. Okay. Well, there, there's your answer. Now, five years before The Godfather was released, you worked on one of my favorite movies, which was the adaptation of Ira Levin's novel, Rosemary's Baby. Was that yeah. one of the first movies that you got involved with? Well, it was nice because it was a group of movies based on books that, that Evans and I felt enthusiastic about. Some of them, because they were kind of counter-programming, like Love Story, was a gigantic hit. But it came out at a time when the movies like Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy were going strong. There was an audience for a romantic, albeit somewhat dopey, picture. Love Story saved the studio, really. 
Rosemary's Baby was a terrific thriller, but Evans and I felt that rather than put it in the hands of a sort of B-picture director, if we brought persuaded Roman Polanski, who had done some brilliant pictures in Europe, if we persuaded him to come to Hollywood and actually make a, a Rosemary's, direct Rosemary's Baby, it would have a perspective that other thrillers of that time didn't have. Uh, so, um, so that's Evans and I set out to persuade Roman to move here, um, which resulted in a couple of amazing movies like Chinatown, but also brought him into obviously into certain personal problems, which took took him some years to overcome. Was um, was Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes the early choices, or did were there different actors considered at that time? They were pretty much Roman's choices from the start. The problem, which we didn't foresee, was that Mia Farrow had recently gotten married to a very quiet, gentlemanly fellow named Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and so about three, three, let's see, about two weeks into the shoot, uh, I got a call from Sinatra in which he said, it's my wife. And she, they, Roman Polanski is putting her through 15, 20, 25 takes. I don't want that to happen. I said, I don't tell Roman what to do. He said, well, I think uh, you should. And his attorney called me an hour later and said, you know, the health of your family and you would be vastly improved if you told Roman Polanski to limit himself to four takes of Mia Farrow. <laughs> of course, we couldn't do that. Evans couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And um, the health of my family fortunately survived it. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting you should mention Sinatra because, uh, um, well, here, here's a question that goes back to The Godfather, because we always assumed in reading the book and seeing the movie that Johnny Fontaine was based on something related to Sinatra. What's the story on that, Peter? Was that, was that all mythology or was there actually a situation where Sinatra had to get out of a contract? It was very complicated. And, you know, in all candor, I don't remember some of the ramifications. Right. Um, but all I know is that there were problems casting that role because Sinatra and other of his friends didn't feel that it was um, an actor playing a Sinatra-like role was desirable. Right. So there was a bit of tension surrounding that. Sinatra was pissed off. And, you know, once again, because of the New York Times, I knew Sinatra somewhat, and I understood his, his anger. He'd just gotten married, and he's wanted to produce movies with Mia in it. And Rosemary's Baby was way behind schedule. So he was understandably upset that Roman was shooting very slowly. But that's what Roman did. Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> Chinatown, obviously, is another major hit for the studio when you were there. Um, Jack Nicholson always considered the lead for that movie, or was there someone else considered at one point? Yeah, and, and he was very friendly with Evans, and Bob made such a tremendous contribution to that movie because of his relationships with the actors and, and the director, came very close to Roman Polanski, and it really... Uh, and I think Sam Wasson wrote a very good book about the making of Chinatown, which was very accurate, unlike other books and, other, and stories about Paramount Pictures. I think Sam Wasson got that pretty right. What, um, what caused the change of administrations? What uh, got you and Evans uh, out of the studio? Was it a a new desire to change things, or was that Evans uh, did something that bothered Blue Dorn? I mean, how did that happen? Well, we had eight or nine years, very successful times. Right. And Evans and I worked very well together. We didn't have a moment of disagreement on anything. He was just absolutely a brilliant, instinctive filmmaker. He could make movies theatrical. He had a theatricality 
to the projects. That was extraordinary. Um, so, you know, eight years had gone by. There was a tremendous noise factor because the studio was a joke at the beginning and it was far and away the number one studio in town, Paramount was. But it was time, I felt, to, to move on. There was a, a blue on and the man he had appointed as president, a man named Frankie Blance, they were fighting. Uh, Charlie Bluron was become friendly with Barry Diller and wanted him to come in over Bob Evans. And I was getting a lot of very good, interesting offers from other companies. So I felt it was time for me to leave and Bob felt it was time for him to stay, but as a producer, not as a studio head. Frankly, being a studio chief is a great job but it's also riddled with constant tension. I mean, you can't, you don't, you can't be head of a studio and be loved. Everyone loves you when you green light a picture. But then from day one of production, you are the money. You're the guy who can control them, control their budget, control their cast. And you uh, suddenly become a figure of, if not hatred, at least tension. You didn't, you can't, you, it was easier for me as a journalist, because as a journalist, you don't want to be loved. Uh, as a um, studio chief, you have to get used to the fact that you're not going to be loved. Now, uh, Evans obviously wanted to start producing his own pictures. Did you think about uh, having been around it all those years that you wanted to become an independent producer? Or did you enjoy just being an executive? Well, I was sick of corporate life. I had enough of that. And I had an opportunity to go into business with a extraordinary billionaire, billionaire who was the first of the techie billionaires. His name was Max Polesky. And basically, we made some pictures together and co-produced them that we self-financed. So I didn't go to an actor and say, please accept this role. I would go to an actor and say, here's the paycheck. Uh, this is the green light. Let's do it. And so we made some terrific movies. You have George C. Scott behind you. Here's that shot from uh, the ad from uh, Islands in the Stream. That's one of the movies that Max and I made together. So for, for leaving a environment of great corporate tension, I was lucky enough to be in a situation where um, I could really make the decisions with Max, and, and we had great freedom in making films. Well, let's talk for a bit about Islands in the Stream. I, I saw it, um, and it is one of the most poetically beautiful films I've ever seen in terms of just the, the, how it's painted. I, of course, George C. Scott, in my mind, can never do any wrong. I mean, he's he was a salt-of-the-earth actor uh, uh, in... Uh, I, and one of my last jobs as a publicist for Showtime was I was charged at our TV critics convention. He had just done a remake of 12 Angry Men. He was in the Lee J. Cobb role. And I, my job, I was tasked with taking his martini to him every, you know, every so often, one following him around with a martini. But George was just a just a terrific presence in so many iconic films and perfectly cast as this Ernest Hemingway type person. Um, uh, did that movie start out with George C. Scott? Oh, absolutely. But um, it was going to be a great father-son movie. And I think it worked on that level. It had a third act problem, which I should have identified and done more to solve. But I just didn't feel that the movie paid off emotionally as much as it should have. So uh, and the picture did nicely and uh, it combined, um, re recombined Franklin Schaffner with George Scott. They had made Papillon and Patton. They'd made some wonderful movies together. So I felt that was a perfect team to do a poignant father-son story. Uh, didn't quite work well enough, but Scott is a brilliant actor not exactly a lot of laughs to work with. I mean, he did like his martinis. He had a tremendous anger problem. And he, um, there were moments of tension when I, as the producer, had to also be a peacemaker. 
I'm not gifted at making peace, but I managed to survive this movie and create something of an environment that would finish the movie. Another film you were involved with two years later was um, Being There with Peter Sellers. Um, yeah. I guess you were at Lorimar at that time? Yeah, I was the president of Lorimar, and I thought that was just an amazing book. And Hal Ashby, when I was first at Paramount, I thought Hal was a brilliant young director at that time and persuaded him to direct a picture called Harold and Maud, which again was an adventure in counter-programming. Harold and Maud was a sweet picture <laughs> that everyone felt would be a flop. But a lot of people saw it over and over again, loved the movie. But oh, anyway, I went years later to Hal and said, look, you've done a lot of stuff without me. I've done a lot of stuff without you. I think being there with Peter Sellers would be a superb piece for you. And he fought me a little bit on it, but he committed to do it. And I thought, if you look at pictures of that period, it really holds up brilliantly, I think. It's one of those timeless films that could take place in almost any era. Uh, Peter Sellers over the years has been uh, characterized at times in being a very difficult performer to work with. How was he on that picture? He was difficult, but he also was poignant in the sense that he was had lots of personal uh, health problems and uh, was obviously toward the end of his career. And, uh, and Hal Ashby had some health problems too. So from the start being there, I thought it would be a, could be a brilliant movie, but it was always a very element of tension as to whether the health of the director and the star would hold up. And uh, by God, it did. And I think that picture, I really recommend to people to see today because I think it's quite a remarkable, quite a remarkable comedy. Peter, were you at Lorimar when Sam Fuller came over with the Big Red One? Was that one of yours? And Sam was one of the most delightful directors I have ever worked with. He's an absolutely brilliant man. The film nerds loved him. I didn't know him that well, but uh, he did something which I always thought was remarkable for a, for a filmmaker who that accomplished. When Big Red One finished, and he had a tough time cutting it together. It was shown to audiences, didn't work. So Sam comes to me and he said, look, I think I failed on this picture. This is like my 30th movie. It doesn't work. Go out, you go out and hire an editor who can make this thing work, put it together. I've worked with editors. There's no one I would nominate. Your objective, find someone, put them on the picture and let's you and I then run it together. And the picture worked great, <laughs> but I had, I love him for his humility. That he actually is one case of filmmaker saying, I don't know how to finish this picture. Let's figure it out together. Yeah, it's, it's a very ambitious picture. And uh, uh, I think, as I recall, um, there's a longer version that's somewhere in the ether that people want to see, because I know that it was cut down considerably. Yeah, that was probably Sam's original version. And who knows, I don't have that good a memory to say to you decades later that the picture improved or didn't. I, I Too long ago. So you've been observing the film business and for so many years. I We've talked a little bit in our pre-interview about the nature of the business today. Um, it's funny, when you told me that when you went to Paramount in the, in the 60s, the studios were dying and television was king, it could be argued today that the studios are dying again, streaming is king. Can the, can the picture business, the theatrical business, can it recover? I think it can to a degree. I think it's a very dicey time for young filmmakers to get into the business because the whole issue about theater, how important is theatrical release? 
does it help a movie? <laughs> I would recommend that people take a look at Air from Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, because it's a perfect example of how the picture originally was thought of as a streamer, gained notoriety, gained interest, and is doing well thanks to its theatrical release. So I think Air is going to be remembered as an important picture because it did get a release. I think the, 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 for a film to be finished, to have a festival opening, to have a premiere, to get screenings, um, I think it's, it's tragic that we're now in a situation where the overwhelming number of movies simply, they materialize. People don't even know what to expect. They're not prepared for it. There's no word of mouth. It's a very tough time. I miss that part of of the early, the early part of the business when I when I first came in and we could reinvent things. We were so dependent on test screenings and on uh, uh, on festivals. We wanted to build a sense of importance to a movie. Oh, absolutely. Um, last week I had Lorraine Gary on the show and she was Roy Scheider's wife in Jaws and yeah. obviously married to Sid Scheinberg. And uh, I, in doing my pre-research on Jaws, I was startled to find out that in 1975, which doesn't seem that long ago, although it is, that movies did not open in 400 theaters at once, that that was not n normal. Uh, in your day, when you were at Paramount and you brought out a movie like uh, The Godfather, uh, was that a movie that was platformed at first in a few theaters and then spread? Uh, how were well, releases that was, treated? That was, the, that was a, a, the first picture that got actually a fairly wide release. Uh, and that was, again, Paramount. The feeling was, this is something strong. Let's go wide with it. Uh, we don't need to just platform it. Um, but you mentioned Jaws. I mean, Jaws was, I, I am really from Martha's Vineyard. That's where my family is. And we've owned homes there. I was for a uh, hundred years. And I was present on the shoot of Jaws. And I remember the sense of disaster that surrounded that movie. Uh, uh, I mean, Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus did come to me and say, God, who do I have to dot, dot, dot to get off this movie? It's a disaster. The shark doesn't work. Steven Spielberg, actually, no one knew this, but he was like six times over budget. He was totally baffled by this movie. And I loved being present just as a civilian because they were shooting on my island. And I could see the panic of this cast and crew. Uh, and of course, emerged as one of the most memorable movies in history. And a movie that completely changed the concept of summer. I mean, it's been characterized over the years that in those days, summer was kind of a dumping ground uh, for pictures that yeah. uh, the idea of, well, the idea of releasing a movie wide in the summertime when everybody's at the beach, uh, supposedly, was a bit radical at that time. And now not only a, a picture, a special movie. It wasn't a Marvel movie. There was no superheroes in it. In those days, you could take a picture in summer that you feel would strike an audience response. It was, it was a delicious idea. Oh, sure. Well, I, I personally, the summer of 1963 was a big year for me. That was the year that uh, John Sturgis uh, directed The Great Escape with Steve McQueen and Richard Attenborough, which is a kind of a, um, not only my all-time favorite movie, I've researched it to the hilt, I've interviewed Sturgis, I've talked to almost everybody who was alive about the making of that movie. And that was a summer 63 release uh, and an important picture. These days, you know, it's funny, the, the Marvel Universe, the Star Wars Universe, all the franchise pictures, uh, you know, I, I, I completely understand the methodology, the marketing of them. They're, they're reaching out to the 12 to the 24 audience, which is one of the few audiences that does go to the movies if it's the right movie. How do you, I mean, it seems to me 
that they've been milking that genre of film to the extreme over the last 15 years. How long do you think that can continue? Or will we basically see Marvel Universe's movies for the for a long time? Well, I think we're at a time of great change. It's hard to read change. Uh, I know the changes when I first went to Paramount were so overwhelming that the, you could never ever predict who would work and what would work. But that time, remember, was they had the war, you had drugs, you had a whole new epoch in music, you had the pill, society was changing. Now, the big question now is, the film culture will reflect changes in society, but we're in the middle of it. It's hard to read the way in which society is changing, the way in which a popular culture is evolving. I can't read it, uh, and I'm so grateful that I'm not in the middle of making decisions about what content to create. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I <laughs> uh, We throw up our hands a lot. It's funny because in uh, the producing side, we're always told that you've got a package. You've got to get actors of note because they're the ones that are going to help you sell it to a distributor or a financier. And yet invariably, we'll see movies that get released with virtual nobodies in them, you know, unknown factors. And yet they get releases. Uh, uh, even in horror, where you think that the horror concept would be, uh, the concept is the key, they still, the financiers still say, can you put some names in there? How do you, I mean, the star business has completely changed to when you were working at Paramount. I mean, in those days, there were full-fledged movie stars with huge reputations. Today, it could be argued that other than The Rock and Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio, movie stars don't really exist anymore. What do you think about that? Well, I don't want to sound... I don't want us to sound like a couple of old fogies who are <laughs> dramatizing the past. But in point of fact, when I first came to Hollywood, the, the stars that I would meet day to day, Harry Grant, John Wayne, Henry Fonda, James Stewart, and extraordinary women actresses too, it's great, great, extraordinary women, the superstars, they had a great panache. They all had a history. They had experiences in theater, in most cases. And they were special human beings. And uh, uh, you can't account for, are we making myths of them because that's the way we remember them? Or were they actually bigger than life as they seem to be? I can't tell you, I wouldn't dare to, to guess, but I don't want to be in that group of people who says, oh, these amazing things in the past, that's all, you know, that was better than ever, nothing is as good as it used to be. I don't want to fall into that syndrome. Sure. Well, it's, and you're completely right. The, the thing that in studying the history of the studios in their heydays, they were indeed factories and they were manufacturing and they were grooming talent pools and I think when the, the, the contract system ended and when studios no longer were nursing talent, they left it to the open waters of Hollywood. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's worked as well. I mean, for instance, about 15 years ago, I was uh, I, I acquired the rights to the great World War II television series on ABC called Combat. You remember it, Vic Morrow, Rick Jason. Great series. And we were talking, interestingly, it was bought by Sherry Lansing at Paramount. So it was going to be a Paramount feature. And we were talking about American actors who could play a tough infantry sergeant, kind of the part that Lee Marvin played in, in The Big Red One. And the general feeling was that America, all our American actors were all boys. They didn't have the gravitas of the Robert Mitchums, the John Waynes, the Lee Marvins, the Kirk Douglases. The, and if you think about it today, if you were going to cast an infantry sergeant in his late 30s, you know, there's there's a limited pool. Now, the studios, they had that pool covered. 
I also think that the post-World War II generation, I mean, the, the generation that uh, many of these actors who were involved in World War II came back from the war with a certain energy and gravitas that perhaps we don't have today. Any thoughts on that? Well, let me be self-serving. Uh, one of the things I do is write a column for a deadline. And the column this coming week is about the subject in a way, because I'm writing about Tom Hanks, who just published his first novel. Now, I love the fact that a star of his fame and esteem, that he would take it upon himself to become a novelist. That's wonderful. I mean, Hanks, you think of the great roles he's played from um, Saving Private Ryan to Philadelphia. To, I mean, he's run the gamut. He's a brilliant actor and a real star. So I think Tom Hanks, if he were with us now, he would say, yeah, well, my answer to this is I wrote a novel. A novel to a degree is about movie stars. It's about the star mentality. And it's quite an interesting somewhat satiric um, novel. Uh, I think it's the title is complicated. Uh, it's called like the, the, the world's greatest um, superstar movie ever or something like that. I, I don't have the title of this novel, uh, but actually I think I do. It's called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece by Tom <laughs> Hanks, published by... Um, an estimable publisher. He's, he's a terrific writer, as well as being a genuine movie star. But his, his is a, it's, it's a board to Alfred Knopf is the pub, publisher. But his point of view about the nature of stardom and the challenges of being a star are very interestingly described in novel form. I love the fact that he decided to do it as fiction, not do it as a book a conventional book. Anyway, so that is my column for next week. Uh, okay. I've been writing this column for 30 years in one form or another, and uh, I continue to enjoy it because it forces me to confront some of the questions every week that you are raising during this show. No, no, that's great. That's great. And we all look forward to your columns. And um, if you know, the nice thing about Deadline, everyone, is you don't have to pay a dime for it. Deadline is free on your phone and you can get these columns from Peter and they're terrific. Uh, my friend Pete Hammond also writes for you guys. He does the uh, some of the critiques and everything. Well, Peter, this has been wonderful. Um, I, uh, I really enjoyed your memory lane stories from the studio and your observations. Uh, you know, you are a, a fountain of not only knowledge, but a good deal of wisdom, and we appreciate that. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Everyone, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. We've been listening to the great Peter Bart. Keep writing and keep, uh, keep up your focus, Peter. Thank you so much. Thank you.